0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Art Director Mike Pekovich and senior editor Matt Kenny. Alright, a little business to take care of first. You'll notice I didn't say live stream, and that's because we've actually decided to dump the video portion of the podcast. Because quite frankly, most people are at work when they're potentially watching our video recording at 1:30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. So That, you know, we go by, everything goes by the metrics. The metrics didn't pan out, so we're concentrating on audio only. So no more live stream.
1: And it's not very exciting to see two guys sitting at a bench, not moving much, and talking. Well, that depends
0: on how much of a geek you are. (laughs) I don't think anyone's that big of a geek.
2: (laughs) I still haven't got my wife to sit through one of our uh, video casts yet, so I think that's a good indicator.
0: I haven't sat through one of our video casts yet, <laughs> so, I mean, and I'm in them. <laughs> well, I also wanted to take a moment to urge folks to tell your buddies about this podcast if they're into woodworking, and to maybe even leave a comment and a five-star rating on iTunes. I hope it'll be five stars. Uh, I say it every week, but I'm going to continue drilling this into everybody's heads. We can't keep this ship afloat uh, without the positive comments and the, and the ratings and people spreading the word, so please spread the words. Um, all right. On to our first topic of the day. Matt and Mike, let me ask you a question. All right. Go back in time a few years. If I were still permitted to use sound effects, I'd use a harp sound effect right now. Go back in time, and uh, I want to ask if you can remember your first trip to the lumberyard. Any harrowing stories there?
1: Oh, I can definitely remember my first trip to a lumber, like a real lumberyard. Like, like a I hardwood to, dealer. Yeah, yeah, I used to go to like 84 Lumber and places like that with my dad when I was a kid, right. but... I definitely remember my first trip to a hardwood dealer in South Carolina, which is when I really started woodworking. That's uh, It was a definitely an experience I'll never forget because uh, it's really intimidating to go somewhere like that the first time. Do you remember
2: your, your first one, Mike? Well, I mean, my, actually, my most harrowing experience was my first experience to a lumberyard out here in Connecticut. So I've been woodworking for 15 years or so, but... Uh, Coming out here, a couple crotchety guys. Uh, This was a place where everything was stacked up, so there was a guy in a forklift who had to drive around and get a pallet of wood down for you. And he'd be sitting there smoking a cigarette while you're going through a lumber pile with a scowl on his face. And I went in for a board, and this is back when I had no money spent on lumber. and I came out with about 200 bucks worth of lumber <laughs> that I, I couldn't explain to my wife and it was just because the stress of the situation. The guy is sitting there. Right, It's like well I'll take this one. I guess I'll take this yes. one too. Uh,
1: I know that lumber yard. I know the exact place you're talking yes. about. Yes, <laughs> My first place. Well first of all there are no hardwood lumber dealers in South Carolina. At least that's what it felt like and I went to this place outside of Columbia And this guy had these uh, barns with, uh, they almost had like what we call bisqueen or bisqueen down in the south. It's plastic, you know, like, uh, and those those were the roofs. And so you can imagine what this place was like on a hot summer day. I mean, it was brutal, and everything was stacked in there, and there were no lights. So uh, you're just, you know, I had no clue what I was doing either. I basically had a basic understanding of a board foot. Uh, but not much, and this guy wasn't really helping me. And, you know, you have no clue how much things should cost and really how to choose. So you buy more
0: than you need is what ends up happening. I,
1: th- I probably did. I was buying lumber for my daughter's crib. I think that was the first time. And then I had, you know, I had my Honda Civic there, so I was trying <laughs> yeah. to get, you know, how, you know, it was probably like uh, you know, 40 or 50 board feet of maple into my Honda Civic.
0: Is this the Honda Civic that got broken into here at the fine woodworking parking lot once when you were away on a trip shooting an article? No, the
1: Civic didn't get... It was my my wife's
0: Acura Integra that was stolen from the parking lot here. Stolen? See, uh, few people know that uh, Newtown, Connecticut, where we're based, is actually um, rife with gang warfare, uh, <laughs> right. um, all sorts of scenes. Rival woodworking gangs. It's, it's exactly. I and mean, right. I, I later found out that um, an editor from a competing magazine that shall be or remain unnamed was actually responsible for that theft. Um, right, yeah, they stole my car. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, anyhow, listen, I asked this question today um, because we have a special guest. Um, Lisa Morgan is my compatriot behind the scenes here at finewoodworking.com, and um, folks may have heard her when we were doing the video live stream. Folks may have heard reference to her, uh, a couple times Asa referenced her, because uh, she used to man the video camera. Um, and Lisa, you know, is basically a budding woodworker. And in order to uh, produce videos of techniques and things effectively, obviously... So, you know, Ed, what you're getting to is that Lisa had to go to the lumber yard. I was trying to work into this <laughs> <laughs> Right, but holy cow, you were taking a long time. <laughs> no, but the point I'm trying to make is that Lisa kind of came in here green, pretty much. Yes, and right. And has been learning the ropes, and recently, actually yesterday, just had her first trip to the lumberyard. So I wanted to bring her in to touch upon what was learned and so on and so forth. So we're actually going to so switch microphones here. For yeah, a we're
1: going to talk about Lisa's excellent adventure to the uh, lumberyard, her first trip. and It actually reminds me of the difference between going your first time when you're green and what happens later, because I used to go to the lumber yard with the guy that taught me to make furniture, mm-hmm. down, also down in South Carolina. And he knew a guy to go to and they were buddies and the experience was just completely different, you know, right. because my friend Joe knew the owner of the, uh, of the lumber yard. The, the whole experience was completely different. And, uh, the guy was much more open and much more willing to talk to you and help you out. So there's a huge difference between that first time you go and then later when you establish a relationship with some lumber dealer. But right. Lisa is now ready to tell us about her first trip. And you went to the same lumber yard that Mike was talking about, didn't <laughs> yes,
3: you? Yes, I, I figured that one out as he was <laughs> talking. I didn't have such a traumatic experience. I mean, I had never been to a lumber yard other than, like, Home Depot, which doesn't really count. Right. Um, so... I had talked to like people like Matt before I went, and I kind of established a plan, so i was prepared when I got there. I didn't want to be like one of those people like, "Oh, I kinda need this, and I kind of need that but so I knew exactly what I needed, and I tried to you know educate myself on the lingo
1: yeah i th- I think one th- what you said there was key is that you knew exactly what you needed when you went there, and that's really important, especially for your early trips to know precisely what it is you needed and what i mean because we you right you and i talked quite a bit about what you were going to need to find there mm-hmm. and uh, so tell talk more about that
3: um well i went there i was only looking for one board so i decided to make it easy on myself um it was just uh like this. i needed six feet of uh eight quarter soft maple and when i get there i arrived during lunch so i'm sure they appreciated that but they they were pretty nice to me and The guy in the forklift was, you know, helpful. Uh, He moves all the piles, brings up the soft maple, and then I was like, how wide did you need? I was like, I need at least probably like eight and a half inches. So he's like, oh, it looks like we only have one board left. And I was like, great. (laughs) So is this the leftover one that nobody wanted.
1: Yes, yeah.
3: But I, you know, I I looked at it. I turned it over to see if it was bowed or twisted, and it looked pretty good and didn't have any knots or anything like that. So I was like, sure, I'll take it, you know, not really knowing if it was I mean, th- another that's
1: thing. another smart thing that you did, because even though you have access to a joiner and planer, if you're really going to maximize the lumber you're buying, you don't want to buy something that's really out of whack at the lumber yard. Right. Yeah, because I think the other thing that that indicates is that, that board is going to be trouble for you when you start to cut it up.
2: Right. Not only are you wasting a lot of material just to get flat on a bowed board, chances are there's a lot of internal stress, which is right. going to continue to go wacky on you. And yeah. as a
3: beginner, like, to deal with that element on top of everything else, it's, you know, right. that would make it much more difficult for myself, probably, right. so. Well, that's yeah.
2: cool that you were even able to throw out a term like eight-quarter, you know, because right <laughs> away they say, okay, this person, they know what they're talking about, eight-quarter.
3: I, like, knew eight-quarter, but then I had to figure out what what was the term for, like, an inch board, and that's four-quarter, so right. I learned that yesterday. Right, right. <laughs> and
2: you took the whole board, you didn't ask, oh, I need six feet of this board.
3: Well, the guy in the list was like, oh, we only sell it in 10 feet lengths. Did they tell you that? I was like, no, but I guess I'll be taking 10 feet <laughs> <Right>. then. <laughs> well, the, the
1: the lengths vary. I mean, you could have found, I mean, right. sometimes it's 8, sometimes it's 10. Uh, a place like the one we're talking about, they often sell in 16-foot lengths. It's because right. they're primarily doing actually uh, flooring in, uh, in architectural millwork. And they just sell hardwood by the piece as a yeah.
2: happenstance. And that's a that's a really good point to remember As furniture makers are not the primary business of lumberyards. No. We're the biggest pain in the butts they have to deal with because we'll pick through an entire pallet and take all the nicest boards and leave the rest for everybody mm-hmm. else. So it is good to understand that, you know, they're, they're kind of, you can be putting them out um, depending on the situation. So it's always good to be a good neighbor at a lumberyard, especially yeah. as a furniture maker.
1: Yeah, it, it, it does sort of depend on the type of lumberyard. The one, that one in particular, I think their primary uh, customer is finished carpenters, right. people buying large amounts of flooring. Uh, but there are other lumberyards like uh, the one up where our friend Jeff works. Uh, his, I think th- that part of that lumberyard is really geared towards people like us to come in and search through it but still i I think one of the things that you learn as you go to the lumberyard more is like one of the first rules is is that if you mess up the stack you clean up the stack right you have to leave it in better condition than you found it right uh because that'll make you'll make friends really quick that way by being (laughs) a good customer in that regard and uh Anything else you think, Mike, that, I mean, because you and I, you've been going to the lumberyards a lot longer than I have, but we've both been going for, you know, at least a decade, uh, that you think you've learned uh, that you would tell Lisa or another new person uh, about the lumberyard?
2: Uh, one thing you get you get better at is um, you can start to sort of uh, use some detective work in looking at, at a pallet of wood and knowing where some nice boards are without having to unstack the whole thing to get what you're looking for. Um, The rule of thumb is all the bad boards are always on top of the pile. (laughs) That does seem to be true. But you start to look at, you know, looking at the uh, end of a pallet is really important. You can start to look at the widths of boards. If you're Like you said, you need an 8.5 inch board, you can look down and and see really quickly where the candidates are. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also tell a lot about the grain orientation by looking at the rings at the end of the board, whether it's plain sawn, rift sawn, uh, quarter sawn.
1: Yeah you can even look by looking at the end grain of a flat sawn board you can tell you know how close are those uh, are the quarter the quarter sawn edges like how tight is the grain there. Right. That tells you something about what the face of the board's going to look like and uh, you can uh, you see so in a way you can you can mentally sort through the stack without actually having to sort through it right. and if you can read that ingrain and also the edge grain uh, which will tell you if the board's curly or not. You can know. Okay, I want to look at that board and right. this board, and all of a sudden you become a much quicker and a much neater person at the lumberyard. And and if you can make friends with the uh, with the, with the with the guy working the stacks that way, you're gonna he's gonna want to help you in the future find boards that you like, find the good boards that he knows are hidden over somewhere else. And uh, you, you'll have a much better experience. Mm-hmm. So I think it is know what you want when you go there. Um, stack the wood nicely at the end. Check, check the wood, make sure it's straight, as straight as you can find it, because right. that's going to save material and, and hassle. Learn how to read ingrain. And uh, what else? Anything else before we wrap this segment up?
2: I don't know, but you're already, Lisa, way ahead of me. First time I went, the fact that you went in for one board and only came out with one board, that's a good start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's only one to choose
3: from, so I didn't have much choice. But what really threw me off is when I first got there, I went into the main office area, and the guy's like, Oh, do you want to pick it out? I was like, Oh, you don't, <laughs> like, well, people don't pick out their boards, but <laughs> I guess. Well,
1: I, I see, I think their average customer is coming in and buying huge amounts of lumber, and so they're not picking it out. They're just like, Give me 500 board feet of maple. And
3: mm-hmm. they don't
1: really care. Furniture makers care, though. Right. That's why we're a pain. All right, so uh, we're going to move on now to uh, the next topic, Uh, and I hope Lisa continues to learn more about woodworking. It's always fun to help someone learn about woodworking. Indeed. Uh, Ed, are you back on? Uh, I'm back on. Yeah, so uh, do you want to introduce the next question? Flawless
0: transition. Well, um, that was an appropriate topic for discussion because the first question is also about, you guessed it, uh, workbenches and lumber and all sorts of stuff. Um, Bill Casey wrote in saying, I'm currently building a new workbench. Uh, already built the case, and now I'm working on the top. Question I've read that when mounting the top with lag screws, you want to allow for some expansion and contraction in one of the screw holes. Uh, is this really necessary? The bench top boards are set on edge. Are they really going to move at all you know, laterally?
1: Yes, they are. Absolutely. <laughs> Tons. <laughs> my bench top, which given it's in my basement, which is uh, the, you know, in, uh, in my garage, actually. Uh, my bench can expand and contract by eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch during the year. Ooh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot. So you definitely have to accommodate
0: for it. So he's going to want to, basically, probably, I would imagine if he's, you know, he's lagging from the upper, the top member of each trestle end, he's going to want to make one of those clearance holes in there wider.
1: Yeah, but Mike, would you put two lag screws in at
0: each end? Uh...
2: I mean, you could. I mean, I don't think it's an issue of trying to keep the thing flat. Because you, you're not really going
1: to keep it flat if it wants to move. Yeah. That's a lot of wood. Yeah.
2: But even if if you do have a couple, as long as your the clearance hole in your trestle top is, you know, oversized, just to give yourself a little wiggle room, you know, you're going to have enough. And then with the flex of the lag screw, as long as your clearance... Well, so how would are,
0: you optimally attach your... What's, this is... This gets to the point of the question, what's your optimal way of attaching your bench top to your trestle lines?
1: Yeah. Actually, we, I get this question a lot about the monster workbench. What's the monster workbench, Matt Kenny? <laughs> <laughs> it's that workbench I made for one of the first video workshops, and it's still in my shop at home. And we forgot to tell people how I attached it during the video. Okay. So I get this question all the time, actually. And I actually tell them I didn't attach it. It just sits on the trestles. And it's really heavy, so it doesn't move. And, uh, you know, so I actually didn't attach it, but I would recommend attaching it. I would think what I would do is figure out, all you're mostly concerned about is it moving under planing force. Right. So uh, I would put cleats across the top oh. with some, but a make attach those cleats to accommodate the wood movement of the top, and put those cleats in between the trestles just so it doesn't shift back and forth and just let it sit up there you know
2: i know a lot of workbenches there's just a uh, a pin or a, uh, you know 1 inch dowel sticking up at the top of the trestle and there's just a mortise in the bottom of the bench top and it just literally sits on top yeah. of
1: that it's the same way of a, uh, as the same thing as the quickest one one dowel in each end at each end, at yep. each end. Yeah. yeah in each trestle two total dow- dowels two so that's total, it two total yeah because wow. really, the the, the the bench a bench top is so big, and in the in the strength of the wood is so great that it's going to move regardless of what you do to it. So you're you're not if it's going to if it's going to cup, it's going to cup.
0: And do you want any play in the corresponding mortise that that dowel fits into?
2: It, not necessarily because it's centered. So the right. movement is happening side to side. I think I have a couple lag bolts in each trestle for my bench mm-hmm. and. I'm just relying on the slop and the, uh, the fit of the clearance hole and the trestles to give me just the room for the wood movement.
1: Yeah, I would think most people don't have wood movement issues in their shop like I do. Because just the nature of my shop being mostly below grade, the, 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 the fluctuations in relative humidity from winter to summer are mm-hmm. pretty significant. And most people probably have a pretty stable moisture content Uh, you know, uh, our relative humidity in their shop. Yeah, I
0: mean, even if you're working on a basement slab, if it's a house that's been constructed within the last 30 years, people by that point in the late 70s knew how to use vapor barriers and how to control moisture underneath the slab. So you're not, like your garage, I know what you're talking about. It's almost like a sponge in there. Yes, Um, yeah.
1: So most people, yeah, you can get away with just maybe a little bit of an oversized hole in the trestle members. And put that lag screw in there. And just one lag screw. You
0: don't need two at each end. Just one on each end.
2: I'll take one out on my bench. Please do, Michael.
0: Okay. Yes. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, second question comes from Ray Rockefeller. And Ray writes, really enjoy your podcast. Could you give an update on the latest progress of fine woodworking live? Uh, The latest on speakers, registration, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I thought I would first remind people that, now through July 16th, if you register between now and July 16th, you can actually save 50 bucks off of the registration price. It'll bump up uh, come July 17th. Um, So that's one. Uh, Number two is at this live event that we're hosting in New Paltz, New York, we're going to have a ton of our contributors, including Chris Bexford, Michael Fortune, Garrett Hack, um, lots of folks. You two are also... Uh, doing a couple of classes at the live event. And I thought, I'd like you guys to tell us a bit about what you're going to be doing. Why don't you start, Mike? Well,
2: first, I'm bummed out because, I mean, uh, teaching is great, but I would rather be watching Michael Fortune and Steve Lada do their things. Um, Great folks. But um, I get to talk about uh, one of my favorite things to demonstrate, which is sharpening, because... Um, The biggest problem is, it's not that there's not enough information on sharpening out there, that we haven't published enough articles on sharpening. Um, I think there's too much information. And then you look at catalogs, there's a billion different sharpening stones and diamond plates and and microfine sandpaper. Where do you start? So I like to say, you know, here's a really basic, simple technique that'll get you really sharp in just a few minutes and go. And for me, because it's one of those... Um, those entry-level skills that, that really, without it, you're stuck. But with yeah. being able to get sharp, um, it just opens up a whole world of woodworking, which is really fun and fast, and you do great work. So. And then uh, sort of as a bookend to that, because that's sort of the front end of woodworking, I also am going to do a quick demonstration on a really simple finishing technique. Same thing, way too much information and products available on finishing. Here's one simple technique. Right. To get you going. And you're doing some really fun stuff, too.
1: Yes, but I'm not bummed out. I'm actually going to put mirrors up so I can watch myself teach. Uh, okay. (laughs) uh, Just kidding. There's a
0: Carly Simon song that that notion reminds me of. Carly Simon? Yeah, it starts with your and it ends in vain. Yeah,
1: even though I was probably only (laughs) one or two when she wrote that, I think she wrote that about me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm actually, I would love to see uh, Michael Fortune, Steve Lotta, and... uh, and although I'm kind of lucky, I get to see those guys already, you know, in their shops. So it's kind of cool. Uh, now everyone's going to get to see how awesome they are. Right. But um, I'm doing, uh, my main class is uh, bench jigs. That's so
3: awesome.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, everyone has a bench, but the bench itself is pretty basic. And you can, it, it's, it's like a nice uh, foundation tool and you can add bench jigs to it to make it specifically geared towards one task and make it excel at that task so like a shooting board or a saw hook or a planing stop or i've got this thing i'm going to show which i call it a a bench stage and then we've got the bench dogs no 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 bench horses sorry bench horses and so there's just a couple of different jigs or fixtures that i use on my bench to make it better suited to specific tasks and I'm also going to talk about uh, another course I'm doing on Sunday, is about uh, basically my my approach to box making from A to Z. Oh, cool! Or basically from
2: selecting lumber at the lumber yard to finishing. Now, is that just with hand tools, or you're going to break out the power tools?
1: It's both. It's cool. so I'm going to talk about how I resaw and how I resaw to preserve the best possible four corner match. Great. Uh, so there'll be, I'll talk about the joiner, the bandsaw. I'll talk about getting clean, clean, perfect miters on a table saw. I've got a couple of jigs or rather sleds that I use on the table saw for cross cutting and for miters. I'm going to talk about hand tools some. And, uh, it's, so it's from, it's just A to Z, uh, how to do a box. And there'll even be some, you know, my philosophy on designing boxes. Oh, cool. Uh, cause one of the things I, when I see boxes out in the wild, i'm often struck by well you're talking about free-range boxes free-range boxes not farmed boxes not farm-raised boxes are not yeah they're not they're all steroided up and stuff <laughs> but a lot of the free-range boxes i see i don't know if there's a delicate way to put this but they can be clunky clunky sure yeah and uh, i've I'm, made plenty of clunky boxes i'm just That's arrogant sure. enough to think that my boxes are pretty damn good so uh <laughs> mine are still clunky well, <laughs> you do some nice work, Ed. Uh, so, I'm even going to talk about just the design philosophy. Right on. Cool. which Now I've just turned off all of our readers. Like, I don't want to go see that jerk's classes.
2: <laughs> well, the the one thing about the show because you talked about Sunday, but the way that the thing this is, is August second through
0: August fifth. By yeah.
2: the way. So we have basically um, we're limiting it to um, what is it, 300 folks? Yes. And the way it's going to break out, I think we're going to divide that up into six groups, so it's really fairly small groups of people, and you do a round robin to different presenters, so there's a lot, it's a real kind of a a one-on-one experience. You're not in a giant auditorium with a ton of people. There's going to be room for a Q&A and a real direct contact with all these.
1: And also uh, hands-on. So I definitely plan, like when I'm talking bench jigs, I'm calling people up. Oh, cool. And whether they want to come up or not. And it's going to be, get up here and well, try this out.
0: Spoken by the former professor. That's right. No, but that is, that's not, that's, it's, 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 you're absolutely right. It's not easy at all. It's the same thing that, um, I, it took me a long time to get out of the habit of wanting to build everything. We, we talked about this before. Three quarter. Of getting out of three quarter. Yeah, I mean, you know? design
1: is hard. It's the hardest part about making furniture. It, design, it's the, good design is hard. And boxes, it's especially hard because they're so small. That if you goof up one thing, the whole box can be ruined. So you have to really pay attention to everything when it comes to design. So it you know, I'm gonna to try to at least help show people what I've learned and hopefully
0: it'll benefit them. Yeah. I mean I I I I can certainly say it to offset some of the I I know some people 36 years into it now, still, I think I can say this um pretty bluntly, still think that. Uh, the magazine can sometimes be a little bit aloof and a little bit uh, elitist, but I'll be the first one to say on staff that I have struggled over design, um, and I have no problem saying that. But uh, anyhow, so where do people go to register?
1: Uh, FineWoodWorkingLive.com, right? All spelled that, out.
0: That is correct, FineWoodWorkingLive.com. And remember, now through July 16th, you save 50 bucks, at which, after which point it goes up. You can also see some really
1: awesome commercials at finewoodworkinglive.com. Right, Mike? Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: well, that's all we'll say about that, but right. you can go see some awesome commercials there.
0: All right, well, let's, uh, let's head into our first segment.
1: Let me say one more thing.
0: Well, wait. I'm already into my first segment, Matt.
1: Uh, well, all right.
0: And, uh, I'm going to say
1: it anyways when you're done.
0: That first segment is What Are You Working On? This is where we talk about what we're all working on. Um, Matt, I'll give you a chance, though. You make your little statement first. and then I was then just going to say too. that I also struggled with design when
1: I got started, and so I learned a lot of fundamental principles of design, and so that's all I'm going to try to do is pass along what I've learned, you know, these basic principles that will help anybody design well.
0: All right. Okay. Uh, so, what are you working on? Who wants to go first? Mike? I'm going to call you out.
2: All right. Well, actually, I think we're doing a favorite tool of all time, but that's okay.
1: Yeah, we're just going to ignore it. We're going to do favorite tool of all time.
2: But actually, uh, my favorite tool of all time is also uh, what I happen to be working on. So uh, I think we're both right. See,
0: yeah, see how he's switching it up on you there? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute.
2: (laughs) I want to get this right for all those people
0: who complained about when I used sound effects. So, all right, so now it's time for our first segment of the week, and that is all-time favorite tool of all time this week. Uh, Mike, what's your all-time favorite tool this week?
2: Well, what I uh, happen to be working (laughs) on lately is also my uh, favorite tool of all time for this week. Um, (laughs) I just finished a brand-new tool cabinet for my shop. Um, In full disclosure, this is sort of a shameless plug for upcoming video workshop series I just finished uh, with Ed, which is making a tool cabinet for your shop. And as much as I really like my old one, um, Ed said, Mike, you need a new tool cabinet? I said, no, I love my tool cabinet. I looked around my shop, and I saw that more of my hand planes were sitting in drawers and nooks and crannies and shelves than were actually in my cabinet. I said, well, wait a minute. Let me see what I can do here. So I took account this morning, and in my new tool cabinet, I actually have 22 of my hand planes safely Holy stored. in in. Holy in nooks cow. And crannies. You have 22 hand planes, Mike? Uh, well, I had 22 hand planes. <laughs> in my new tool cabinet. So, yeah, yeah, where are the rest of them? <laughs> uh, in nooks and crannies in my shop. I
1: like the the image of Mike's shop having English muffins all around it and hand planes <laughs> sitting on the nooks, in the
2: nooks and crannies of the English muffins. But uh, What was really fun, I mean it's really stressful doing a, a, a video project as you know because it's not just something you want to try and get right for yourself or right for a client, but you try to want to create good information that other folks are going to be able to right. get a handle on. And tool cabinets are real personal. It's like your shop. It depends on the tools you have, the way you work. But um, the funnest thing for me after building the case, in, in essence, getting it done, is that that was really just the beginning. It was like figuring out all the cool ways and tricks to hold specific tools. Right. You start with generic stuff like chisels. That's easy, but then they get more specific like hand saws. And then you have something like, well, what about my micrometer? How do I hang up a micrometer? Where's mm, it going to go? God,
0: you are so broken.
2: And, <laughs> and it, it's neat. So it just becomes this this very customized yeah. of thing. So. I mean,
0: that must have been hard because,
1: you know, any good video workshop, you're right, you're building something personally for yourself. We typically are. Yeah. And, uh, but you also have to build something that will teach the person watching it and teach them things that they can apply to furniture that, may not be that exact piece right and a tool cabinet i think is especially hard because it's so personal because don't delude
0: yourself matt you're building what i tell you to build
1: <laughs> because you have this mike has a very specific set of tools and not everyone has that but you still have to find some way to say we're building a tool cabinet here's how you can build one yeah. for your specific set you have to deliver um,
0: a, a a
2: lesson that's universe more universal right right, right. Yeah. Not like a, a piece of furniture like a a chimney cupboard or a bookcase, which is like we're building this exact thing. It's like, eh, your, your thing is probably going to look a lot different, but here's, some, here's a nice roadmap to get you where you want to go.
1: Right. I mean, the best, the best articles in the magazine, the best video workshops, the best projects, you don't just get a project, this completed piece at the end. You learn a lot of technique right. and a lot of lessons that you can then go on to apply to other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But we're getting way off track uh my favorite tool of the week that's what i'm supposed to talk about now uh is actually um a can i i'll mention, a lee nielsen block rabbit plane oh
2: yeah yes i just
0: got that
1: yes it is a wonderful wonderful wonderful
2: glorious tool so explain this it's a block
1: plane it is a block plane it's about i can't remember how wide it is an inch and a half Maybe I think it's pro- it might be a full two inches, actually. It's pretty wide. It's pretty wide, yeah. And it's a normal block plane, so it's bevel up and it's low angle. But it actually is, down at the business end, sort of like a shoulder plane. So the blade is the full width of the sole. So you can cut right up in the corners. And because it's so wide and because it has that shoulder plane function, it's the perfect tool for trimming tenons. Because most tenons are gonna be shorter than the plane is wide. Right. So you're planing the whole cheek at once, rather than, say, with my medium shoulder plane, which is three quarters of an inch wide, you're doing a bunch of passes to get the full width or the full length of the, uh, of the tenon, and you end up tapering it. Right. And right. Uh, so it's just the perfect tool for trimming like that. And it's also just a, a, a well-balanced uh, hand uh, block plane all around.
0: And you can use it for a lot of stuff. You're missing the best part about it. What's that, Edward? It's got knickers. It does have knickers, yes. <laughs> <laughs> if Mark were here, at least, he would find that really funny. It has beautiful knickers. It has beautiful knickers, that, that, which they, you'll never use.
1: They do sell it, though, in a version without knickers. I don't think they do anymore.
0: Well, I... I the, seem to recall hearing that they only sell it with knickers now. No, if you
1: call and ask... Oh, really?
0: Oh. What, yes. you have to call freaking Tommy Lee Nielsen and... Gee whiz,
1: all right. We don't have to talk to Tom Lee Nielsen. Well, I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's one of those things when I call, yeah, I
2: just offer it up. <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, <laughs> a Block Rabbit plane. Block Rabbit plane, um, awesome tool. It Does it replace my Block Plane?
3: Mm.
1: It can. I think it could. Uh, it's a close, to, if I were to say, we've talked about this before, first plane to buy, oh. I say Block Plane. Yeah. It's hard for me to say which one, but it's either a apron plane, a small apron plane, or this guy, the block rabbit plane. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think it could easily be your first plane. They're both the the block rabbit plane that you speak of, and the uh, and the uh, apron plane that you've spoken of from yes. Lee Nielsen on previous episodes. They're both are the is the angle of the uh, the iron. Set to the, is the I same believe angle? they're
1: both bedded at uh, the same angle. That's what I thought. They're both low angle, so which would be uh,
2: bedded at twelve degrees. Right. Yes,
1: twelve degrees. So
0: they'll function largely the same.
1: Correct. Okay. Yes, but they do also make a higher angle apron plane, uh, so that, that you know you could get. I would, but I would get a low angle block plane. Not, okay. All right. Know.
2: Well, just as in uh, interest of public service, I would recommend that. A block rabbit plane replaces neither the block plane nor the shoulder plane. It's actually a third plane, which you should probably add to your arsenal.
1: Mike's always oh, thinking God, this way. how do I buy another hand plane? <laughs> yes. Although I
2: don't have one yet, so I think I need to build a bigger tool cabinet.
1: You're right. I would not. I mean, ultimately, you're right, Mike. I would say that you need to have a block plane, a shoulder plane, and a block rabbit plane. Yeah. But we're also way down the rabbit hole when it comes to furniture making.
2: You know what? This is something I picked up from uh, Will Neptune, a former instructor at North Bennett and author of the magazine. Instead of the block rabbit plane, a really useful tool that's really cheap and easy to find, one of the easiest tools to find in flea markets and such is like a Stanley 78 a rabbit, rabbit plane. plane. Yeah. And it functions in exactly the same way as a block rabbit plane, again a really wide blade, over an inch, I think that's maybe. The sil- inch it's and all quarter. silver. But no, usually they're black. Oh, they're black. Okay. Yeah. They uh,
1: look like 45s and 55s is that the funky multiplane
2: a little bit. A little bit. There's, yeah. actually a There's actually a whole series, but that is a cheap way if you don't want to go the whole Lee Nielsen route. You can find an old Stanley.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, Record made them too. Yes. Yeah, right. so Record and Stanley ones are both available.
0: All right. Well, moving on to our third question. Uh, Diami Plotke wrote in with a rather lengthy question about fitting a joiner-planer combo machine into his small shop. So here's the deal. Uh, Diami's working out of a one-car garage, measures in at about 10 foot by 22 foot, so narrow kind of space, He's building a bench along one of the long walls to house his sliding compound miter saw. Um, The bench will be about 15 inches deep. Uh, His original plan was to build the bench tall enough to be able to slide an 8-inch joiner underneath the bench. Uh, But he just read Roland Johnson's article on joiner-planer combo machines in 225, and he's giving some thought to going that route. So he's got some specific questions that he'd like some help with. So let's tackle these one by one. Uh, There are three of them. Number one... um, how tall and wide are the combo machines, especially compared to an 8-inch jointer? Uh, could he fit one under that miter saw uh, workbench? How much room do they take up with the jointer beds flipped up to work as a planer? So this is about space. So uh, yeah. what he's getting to here is could he conceivably, I guess, have this thing on some sort of wheeled system and be able to wheel it under that miter saw station. It's often called a mobile base. Um, uh, or base mobile if you're from Canada. Um, <laughs> But, no, but he's wondering, I mean, is that... No, it's a mobile base, eh? <laughs> yes. Uh, we just lost our three listeners in Canada. Michael going to Oh, God, don't me. drop your microphone, Matt. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, <laughs> a little higher, one fist away from the bottom of your chin, Matt.
2: All right. God. Well, we we uh, looked at sort of a couple different categories of the combo machines. Uh, the bigger guys, which I think were, you know, 12-inch and larger, no, you couldn't fit that underneath a... Um, uh, a bench and roll it out. They're pretty heavy duty machines.
1: But not only that, the bench would have to be so tall that it, I think it would almost be unusable.
2: Yeah, uh, there is a definite space savings. Uh, it's it. Even the big 12-inch wide guys are probably not going to be as long as a typical 8-inch joiner. The beds are, are Correct, shorter. Correct, they're not. Yeah, the beds are shorter. It's going to be a little bit deeper. Um, we tested some smaller models, some 10-inch models which uh, which were intriguing because the price point was quite a bit lower and you're getting a big 10 inch joiner for and planer for far cheaper than you could buy a 10 inch standalone joiner for. Uh, performance was was kind of so so um, but if we want to stick to the bigger guys which were the 12 inch guys, uh, you' definitely have a, a much smaller footprint not much small not a little bit deeper than a joiner, certainly shorter than a joiner. So overall right. space you're you're good. The real trade-off there is the switch-out between the joining and the planing. Well, yeah. that
0: that gets to the next question. But but I you know so number one, you're not going to fit this thing under your miter saw station because you're then you're going to be cutting at a very awkward position.
1: Yeah, it's going to make the, the the bench will have to be too yeah, tall. It's not going to happen. Yeah. and also it, it's twelve inches deep for just the beds, and depending on the fence style, it could be another significant amount of depth to it as well. Right. So your bench would have to be really deep. Uh you know, it'd have to be pretty f- comf- and I don't think you'd want that on a uh, chop saw
0: necessarily. Okay. So So number 2 yep. is how easy is it to switch between jointer planar models? And before you guys go into this, I wanted to say that we did shoot a video and if you go and search on the site for is a jointer planer combo machine right for you? You'll bring up a video with Ken St. Ange Um, where he actually shows you exactly how each one of those uh, switches from one mode to the other. I think
1: I saw that pamphlet at the uh, doctor's office in college. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what did you, I mean, did you guys have anything to say about uh, ease of changeover? I used one before, actually in the Monster Workbench uh, Mm -hmm. video workshop. I used Anatole's shop. What did you think about that? I thought it was no problem. Uh, to switch back and forth between it. It really doesn't take much time to do it. Uh, so the actual act of switching back and forth between the two different functions is not really a big deal. Uh, and the, the, what's, the one thing you always got to keep in mind about when you start to think about the, the negatives of a joiner-planer combo is just remember, 12-inch joiner, 12-inch yeah. no, joiner, 12-inch exactly like <laughs>
0: joiner. Which, could you really ever afford to buy a 12-inch standalone joiner?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, they cost at least as much as a joiner-planer combo. And Um, here's
2: another benefit, is that uh, segmented cutter heads with little carbide teeth are fantastic. So, and they're expensive. But on a combo machine, if you spend a couple few bucks more, you can get a segmented cutter head that's doing double duty. Number one, you're putting a lot of wear and tear on a single cutter if you're using it for both a joiner and a planer. You put a segmented cutter head in there, it's going to give you really clean surfaces and last for a long time, and you're doubling your investment in a segmented cutter head by getting two machines in one out of it. I don't. That probably didn't. But make also, sense you, well, well no, you,
0: you rotate those knives, segmented yeah. knives, yeah. and then you've got four cutter heads on each knife.
1: So in other words, you, as uh, Napoleon Dynamite, say you get one sweet cutter head. For two machines.
2: For two machines.
1: You don't have
0: to buy two cutter heads. Right. Yeah, which saves you a lot of money. The, most of them, um, I, I mean, I shot that video with Ken, and most of them, uh, to switch between modes, you have to lift the infeed and outfeed tables up separately. However, there was mm-hmm. one model that both infeed and outfeed tables, they lifted up uniformly. Right, One yeah. smooth movement, and that was pretty sweet. I mean, that was a piece of cake. And so. do we identify that model in the review I, or in the video? Yes, you can see you it. Check in, out the review in the magazine. I mean, you can check out the review in the magazine, and yeah. you can see what, who the manufacturer was in the video. I mean, we, we didn't want to necessarily specifically pump one manufacturer over another in the interest of editorial integrity, but that was an interesting little right. part of that particular yeah, model.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, a lot of times I think, and I do this too, we get really caught up in these minute details. And I think in the end... Uh, you don't want to get you don't want how long does it take me to switch from joiner to planer to be the deciding factor on whether or not you get a joiner planer you know it's like you should more think about the the huge joiner you're going to get twelve inches you know the space savings that you're going to get in a small shop right and uh also good dust collection on both of them hmm. um so and, and not worry so much about, is it going to take me 31 or 32 seconds to yeah. switch between these?
2: Well, the question is, switch out really brings up a larger question, which is your workflow in milling. And right. Typically, you know, if you mill smart and in batches and you do all your parts at once, you're not really going from planer to joiner back and forth a bunch. a bunch. Right,
0: yeah, yeah, which I think actually is his... Well, his next question, yeah. his last question was, um, when going from one mode to the other, uh, are you able to preserve the settings from the previous mode?
1: Right. It, I believe
2: on, I can't say this definitively for all of them, but I, I believe no. A lot of them you're having to lower the planer bed, but here's the thing. Significantly. With a regular standalone joiner and planer, let's say you're milling all your stock to thickness and you either mess up a piece or you forgot one you have to do it again chances are you're not going to go from rough stock joint to face and, and put it right through your final finished, setting, your, final yeah. setting your planer. So you're in the same, you're the same it's, problem. You're in the same boat no matter what boat you're floating in there.
1: Yeah, and if, you're, and if you're milling things efficiently and smartly, then it's not an issue at all because, you know, like what, this is what I do, for example, uh, and I, you know, I think it's a fairly smart way to do it. You do all your face joining, on all the parts you're milling at that time. Right. All your face joining. You go and then you plane in the thickness mm-hmm. and then you can come back and do your edge joining. Right.
2: And then you're ripping them to width.
1: And then you're going to rip them the width and cross cut them the length. So you're looking at two switchovers there mm-hmm. and if you've got your your wits about you, which I always I don't always have my wits about me, but if you have your wits about you, you're not going to need to go back and
0: do it again. Right.
1: So, again, I don't think that that, the fact that they don't would be a deciding factor for me. Right.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, that leads us into our second segment of the day, and that is Tool Tech. And we actually introduced this segment um, a couple weeks ago, and we started talking about bandsaws. But Matt approached me later and said, you know, I I think there was a bit more we could have accomplished with that segment. So let's revisit it and... uh, Tell us about what you're looking for when you're buying a bandsaw.
1: Yeah, I think uh, someone wrote this in the comments afterwards, that I think we didn't get to what we really wanted to, which was... when weeds. Yeah, let's talk <clears throat> about the features that we like
2: in bandsaws.
1: So, uh, you want to start, Mike?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you talked a lot about the 14-inch bandsaw in your shop, which was the 14-inch bandsaw in my shop. Right. And the reason it's in your shop is because I recently upgraded to a 17-inch bandsaw. And it's, on the surface, 14 to 17. It doesn't seem like that big of an upgrade, but it's really a fundamentally different machine. Um, it's a, uh, it's, what do you call it, a sheet metal style? It's the European body.
1: style stamp steel frame. Yep,
2: it's yep. a, a grizzly saw. It's got uh, roller bearing guides, which are, are fine, as opposed to the, the little blocks. Uh, what I really like about it, it's got a very nice fence, it's very easy to set for drift. Uh, it's, um, it's very solid, I have increased uh, resaw capacity, stronger motor, everything's great, but my favorite feature about it is the fact that it has an electronic brake for the wheel, so mm-hmm. the minute I turn off the saw, the wheels stop instantly. That's nice. And the bigger wheels with the bigger mass on a lot of the uh, bandsaws we tested in that category, they would spin for, it seemed like upwards of a minute. And for me, the most dangerous time is when you shut off the machine, but those wheels are still spinning because there's so much mass and momentum there that you can very silently and very quickly cut your finger off if you're not careful.
1: Yeah, you hear a lot of stories about bandsaw injuries that start with... I had turned the machine off, and I was going to move an off-cut out of the way. Right. And the blade's still spinning, so they get cut that way. Sam Maloof, I believe, that's the way he cut his hand on a a bandsaw. Uh, Yeah, electronic brake is a great feature to have. Those only are going to come on the bigger saws.
2: Yeah, or mechanical brakes whether you have to step on flip it to break, stop yeah. a foot brake that, that works just as well.
1: Yeah, we it. have that here in the shop at Fine Woodworking a mechanical brake on our big band saw, but it always kind of freaks me out. I'm like, oh I'm gonna break it, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna destroy this machine. But it doesn't. You you just jam your foot down on it and it stops.
2: Yeah. The nice thing about that there's also an electronic switch where it shuts off the machine and stops at the same time. Some of the machines we tested, they had a foot brake which didn't actually turn the machine off. You had to turn it off and step on it. Mm-hmm. No big deal.
1: Yeah, I think uh, another feature which may not be the first thing you think about when you're because most guys think about the resaw capacity and sure. horsepower is dust collection.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Dust collection. Yeah, that your fourteen-inch saw doesn't do a good job of
1: that. It does not. It does. It, it's <laughs> a, it's a great dust spreader. Yes. But not a great dust collector. Um. Yeah, I would, uh, I am I think I'll be getting a new bandsaw soon, and I will absolutely, dust collection will be at the top of my list, because the bandsaw creates tons of fine dust, and it can really kick it up. Um, but it's the old style uh, cast iron frame, which I think that has more places for the dust to escape than sort of a stamped steel uh,
2: frame. Maybe so, that's right, my new saw has a couple four inch dust ports. I have a it- my dust collector attached just to the one right below the guides, mm. it pulls everything out.
1: It's yeah. Great. And I would say definitely if you can get it with a four inch dust port, but that might mean that might automatically take you out of the 14 inch range, which I think a 14 inch bandsaw for a lot of people is the way to go because honestly, the only reason to have a really big bandsaw, not the only reason, but the primary reason people want it is to do resawing big resaws, but you got to think about the way you work, and do you really ever resaw stuff wider than six inches? You know, how often are you doing that? And if you don't really ever do it, then you don't need a big bandsaw. You know, you can really get by with a 14-inch, but that being said, I, of course, I want a big bandsaw, because I actually resawing and making shops on veneers has become a huge part of the way I work, and I think now I need a larger bandsaw, so, uh, or as my brother, my brother's an offshore fisherman, and he always says, uh, You don't, you don't want to have a big fishing boat. You want a friend with a big fishing boat. Because that right. way you don't have to buy it and maintain it. So, I need friends with big bandsaws. Uh, Mike only lives a couple of miles from me. So, maybe Well, I'll... and you've
0: got this monstrous Italian jobby over here in the shop.
1: Yeah, but then I got to, it's, you know, a 30 minute drive to get to work. No,
0: well, all right.
1: Yeah, but when I'm here, I always make sure I use our 16 inch European joiner too. Okay. A little bit of a brag there. Oh, and the last thing. Yes. Fence. Fence. Good fence. Good fence. You don't want to have to replace the fence after you buy your bandsaw. So find one with a good fence.
2: Right. And fortunately, most of the ones we've looked at do have good fences now. When I bought mine, it didn't even come with one.
1: Yeah, the fence that you gave me when I bought that bandsaw, Mike, to be honest, was a piece of
2: junk. Sucks. And I actually paid good money for that, too. Did you? (laughs) Yeah.
0: I have since replaced it.
1: i
2: replaced it with a good fence.
0: Um. All right, shall we move on? We shall. Uh, well, fourth question. Uh, Jeff Sharver wrote in, I have a DMT, there's a lot of like acronyms and all sorts of stuff going on in this question. I have a DMT 10-inch by 4-inch dual-face diamond sharpening stone. Nice. 325 and 620 grits for my chisels and plane irons, which I use with a honing guide. Specifically, it's a Veritas MK2. Now, that works well, but I could probably do better towards getting a truly sharp edge. I'm considering adding a DMT extra fine stone, 1,200 grit, to my arsenal, but I've been reading about the higher grit ceramic stones, which only need a spritz of water as opposed to soaking water stones. I don't like the cupping and wear issues with water stones, so I'm willing to spend some extra bucks on a higher quality product that doesn't need flattening as often, and it's less messy too. What do you think?
2: Wow. Gentlemen, talk amongst yourselves. Um, to the beginning part, yep, you need to go further than a, uh, than a coarse diamond stone. Even
1: further than a 1,200 grit fine diamond stone. Right. So yeah. I
2: would say skip the extra fine diamond stone. And uh, you sort of bring up a, a second question. Okay, where do you go from there? Um, ceramic stones and water stones both work fantastic. There is a notion a lot of people are uh, sort of scared away from water stones because of the notion that they, they do dish out. And um, they do go out of flat. And this seems like a scary thing, but actually the fact that they dish out is actually as much of a positive, and I think much more of a positive than it is a negative. Because when the stone wears out, what it means is that you're, you're exposing fresh abrasive in there. Right. It doesn't glaze over. Like in, say, an, oil, an old oilstone, which um, will glaze over after a time and just really stop cutting but, it.
1: I, you- I also think that, That idea that waterstones are a real pain in the neck to to maintain comes from back in the day when everyone was using natural waterstones. Hmm. I I have not really seen those for uh, use those personally, but uh, I because modern contemporary modern waterstones that that are being made by Shapton and Norton and uh, and all these uh, other companies, they actually really don't dish that fast. That's we found that when chris gochner and i did the waterstone uh, test not too long ago we found especially in the polishing stones the 8000 grit and higher they're really not dishing that much so but they're still cutting
2: very fast right uh, so i don't um, it is still an issue you do need to flatten your You do your have water to stones. flatten it yes you do and you know you need to flatten waterstone you need a coarse Diamond. And he already has one. You've got it. Yeah. So you're already there. I think if
1: I were uh I think I would tell Jeff to buy a uh a four thousand, eight thousand combination water stone. Okay. Uh because it's one stone, he gets the two grits that he probably really needs. Mm-hmm. Uh and um it's a good entryway. Now the the downside is is that, you know, you'd probably wear through that quicker. So in 10 years from now, he might need to replace it as opposed to something longer. A lot of it depends on how, right. how often he's sharpening. you know I, I don't know, but uh, at least he needs a four and an eight, whether right. it's a combination stone or not, I don't know. Yep. but:
2: yeah, combination stones are a great, inexpensive way to get into water stones. Um, I, Ideally, I would get separate stones mm-hmm. because for a separate stone, not only is it thicker, it's going to last longer, like it's kind of a non issue, but I, I have two surfaces. The so edge. So on my face. stones, i well, actually the opposite faces as well. Yeah. So I can actually flatten, and the edge is a nice white edge, so I can flatten both faces so I get double the duty before I have to flatten. Mm -hmm. and then the edges are nice and wide, typically over an inch thick or so, and I can sharpen narrower chisels Chisels, and stuff, which tend to to gouge the stones. I can use the... You've
1: convinced me, Mike. He needs to
0: get two water stones. You can also just flatten the the backs of your irons and chisels just on the edges, too, because you don't need to flatten. You're only flattening, what, the first?
1: Well, a chisel, you probably want to flatten at least an inch to an An inch inch, and a half. Plain irons? Plain irons. Personally, I do the uh, ruler trick. The ruler trick. Yeah, introduced by well introduced to the United States, I guess, recently by David Charlesworth, but also uh, promoted by uh, Dina Pachowski from Lee Nielsen. Yes. Uh, You put a basically you raise the one end of the rule the the iron up just enough with a little thin ruler, and the other so you're only you're putting a very small back bevel on the edge of the cutting edge. Interesting. And, but it polishes instantly yes. and perfectly and huh. you know that that back bevel never really grows because you're constantly you're sharpening it which gets rid of it as you're as you're making it so yes. uh, it's really I really like that trick. for plain irons plain only. irons only yeah you'd need yes. a dead
2: flat back for chisels just for the way yeah. that works and functions but, but
1: yeah I've actually looked into replacing all my chisels and plain irons with this new Japanese product it's there was something from a company like called Ginzu, I think, and the guy was cutting aluminum cans and tomatoes. Totally, with them. it was yes. unbelievable. Totally,
0: unbelievable. And I think that's in, in, no sharpening ever. What are you reaching back to like 1988 for that? <laughs> um, well, well, I we've kind of gone on for a long time about some of these topics, so I think we're going to save. All right, let up. me, let me yes. talk. Uh, Sorry. Just
2: because he did mention uh, water stones versus ceramic stones. Yes. Um, There are, that's sort of a gray area, what someone calls a ceramic stone, but uh, Matt had mentioned a brand of Waterstone, uh, Shapton, which basically has a uh, very similar to a Norton Waterstone. Most Waterstones are man-made. There's abrasives and binders, and they're baked in an oven. Uh, The Shapton Waterstones have a very, very hard binder, so they do dish out far less quickly. They're also less porous, so instead of soaking them, like a typical water stone, you spritz them with water. I've used both, and, and the Shapton, uh, they do stay flat longer, and there isn't quite the mess of soaking, you just spritz them, and they, and they do yeah. work very that's well. That's
1: specifically the Shapton glass stones.
2: Uh, yes, right? the Shapton glass stones are very thin. Yeah. you do. They're just one-sided because right. they're backed by glass, so you don't have the two sides to work on. Yeah,
1: because Shapton uh, makes other stones too, but it's specifically those that right. you're talking about. Yeah. Right. a little
0: splash is all you need. Just a splash. A spritz. A spritz. Okay. Um, All right. Well, we're going to have to save our Smooth Moves segments for two weeks from today because I uh, actually wanted to uh, make sure I touched base with our readers via iTunes. Um, We've been getting a good deal of feedback on the show these past few weeks, and since I always ask folks to leave us a nice rating on iTunes... I thought I'd return the favor with some hat tips each week to some of the kind folks who do, in fact, comment there. Um, in fact, I'll even cover a couple of less-than-stellar comments uh, in the interest of fairness. Um, yeah, I think we're losing, a, uh, we're losing a, um, a an overhead light. Uh, I, and Specifically, I think we're losing a ballast oh. in a
1: fluorescent Should we, light. Uh, tr- no, the light switch is in here, Ed. It's this light in here?
2: I, I- think it's in there.
0: Oh, to... Let me see. Oh, yeah. No. No, nope, it's in here. Damn. I don't believe this. I'm going to turn the lights off on you guys. Sorry. Bye. Okay, I just put Matt and Mike in the dark. Yes. Luckily, we're not doing video podcasts anymore. It's kind of romantic. But uh, anyhow, um, Mish, Mish Mikey wrote in to say, Great podcast. Uh, Loves This wrote to say, It's informative, helpful, and interesting. Hmm. ShopDog48 says, A look behind the scenes of fine woodworking, as if that was particularly interesting, but... I think it probably is, maybe. Um, Now, on the not-so-happy side, John is best one wrote in to say, nice show, guys, but I want to turn it off every time you play the sound effects. Um, John thinks they're kind of lame, and we saw a few comments... He's not the only one. Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) We saw a few comments going back and forth on this, and in the end, I ditched the effects, except for, like, segment intros, for the most part. I think it was more like there were 300 comments in one direction, and Ed in the other direction.
1: Isn't that right, Ed?
2: No. And you paid 99 cents for that sound effects app too, so that's too bad. I I know, you
1: had to
0: get your money's worth. (laughs) Some of them were free. Uh, And now to counteract John's comment, my mommy wrote in to say, this was one of the best episodes yet, but my favorite is still Dueling Cabinets. I believe that was a Mike Bekovich and Matt Kenney episode. The information is useful, very clear, and explained at perfection. Now, I want to know, Mom, um, did you actually listen to the podcast? More on that in the next episode. And that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on June 22nd for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments in to taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at findwoodworking.com blogs. Just click on the link to Shop Talk Live on the right-hand side of the page.